Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. A war begun for no wise purpose, carried on with a strange mixture of rashness and timidity, brought to a close after suffering and disaster, without much glory attached either to the government which directed or the great body of troops which waged it. Not one benefit, political or military, has been acquired with this war. Our eventual evacuation of the country resembled the retreat of an army defeated. That was not... A newspaper report on this week's calamitous American evacuation of Kabul, but uh, the report on an earlier Western engagement in Afghanistan, the first Anglo-Afghan war. And it was uh, the words of the Reverend George Gleig, uh, who wrote the first account of that war in 1843. Uh, and Dominic, um, some uh, eerie parallels there, aren't there? Yeah, it's hard to resist the parallels. So that's the one of the most famous military disasters in British history. Um, it's our first great encounter with Afghanistan. Um, some listeners will know it as the stuff of the very first Flashman book. That's how I first encountered it. And I think other listeners, Tom, may know the painting. I don't know if you know the painting. I bet you do by Elizabeth Butler called Remnants of an Army, where the last guy, the, the one survivor. Dr. Um, Bryden. Dr. William Bryden. He's sort of on his horse or mule or whatever it is in the past. And he's the sort of, he's the only one left. You know, nearly 20,000 men have been women and children have been killed and well, he him, him and flashman of course what's the flashman of course flashman right. is the other yes. survivor but of course this is the this is the the image of afghanistan that is so current in the newspapers at the moment the graveyard of empires so the british tried and failed supposedly this is the claim the british tried and failed the soviet union tried and failed and now the united states has tried and failed as well Okay, well, I think there is really only one person to get on to talk to us about the uh, the, the first Afghan war, um, and that is uh, Willie Dalrymple, who was an earlier yeah. guest talking about um, his book, The Anarchy on the East India Company, which in a way is a kind of um, the prequel to the events we're going to discuss today. He, he uh, comes with a, a slight health warning there, doesn't he, Tom, because he is the holder of the rest is history all-time record for speaking uninterrupted. He um, is without yes, he without is. interventions from us, which I think. So I think he spoke for basically an hour, and we said hello and goodbye. And well, um, well so, so, so somebody commented <laughs> on Twitter that that he was like Fenton, the uh, notorious dog that went chasing deer in Richmond Park, and there was the hapless man running after him, shouting Fenton, Fenton, and that's yeah. what we were like. So. Um, it's uh, it's very exciting to have <laughs> Willie back on the show. But Willie, before we kick off, um, that that passage that I opened the the podcast episode with, um, that's the uh, that, that's your author's note in in the book that you've written about this, the Return of a King, um, which is uh, part of the Company Quartet, this collection of four volumes about the East India Company. Um, in in India, uh, which is available now. So uh, I hope I've paid my dues there. <laughs> so Fenton. <laughs> you can shout at any point if you want me to, to stand to leash. Okay, I'm going to throw you a stick here. <laughs> the first Afghan war, how does it begin? So, this is rather a long story. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh. um, one evening, 
1837, a man who you're, I'm sure, very familiar with, uh, George Rawlinson, who's famous for translating the Behistun inscription, uh, who's this Orientalist who'd been based uh, in Persia as part of the East India Company mission uh, to try and get cozy with Persia and to turn them uh, against Russia, uh, who were uh, uh, the East India Company's great rivals. Uh, and in the background to this is that over the previous hundred years, at the same time as the East India Company was expanding out of Calcutta to take over all of India and then marching uh, towards the Himalayas. Same time as this is happening uh, in Russia, the Russians are moving south at a rate of 100, 100 miles every decade. Uh, and by the 1840s, have reached what was called the Orenburg Line, uh, which is just north of the great caravan cities of Kiva, Bukhara, Tashkent, uh, which, as we know now, will fall to Russia uh, in the 1880s and 1890s and in a later phase of the period. But at this point in 1840, the, uh, the East India Company has now occupied all of India, South Sutledge. Uh, the Russians are at the Orenburg Line and everyone is eyeing the territory, the shrinking space in between these two expanding empires. And so what George Rawlinson sees one early dawn in 1837 is very important. He's riding from Behistun, where he's been literally in the middle of translating this inscription, been uh, built a scaffold to take all the cuneiform down. And to, so this is the inscription uh, left by Darius the Great back in the uh, late 6th century BC. And this is a, a kind of the Rosetta Stone of, uh, of the Persian because it also has Aramaic and it allowed uh, the, the translation to, uh, to be made. And Rawlinson, who's literally been working on this um, the previous six months in all his spare time, has now been summoned back to work, so to speak, from this from this uh, Orientalist sabbatical on uh, on the Behistun inscription, and is riding towards uh, the Persian border city of Meshed, where the new Shah uh, is about to, uh, uh, to try and invade uh, the, the the principality just over the border of his territory, which is Herat, previously a great centre of Persianate culture for many centuries, uh, but now independent of the Qajar. Uh, kings of Persia. And uh, there are Russian military advisors working for the Persians and the East India Company very unhappy about this. So Rawlinson's been sent off to observe the start of this campaign. And he's been riding from Western Persia. Uh, because a war is breaking out, the normal post-horse system isn't working in the caravanserai. And uh, he can't get uh, uh, his, his mount exchanged. So he's exhausted, his horse is exhausted. And at some point, just as he's heading towards Meshed, he actually falls asleep in the saddle. It's a long time since I've uh, ridden seriously, and I, can't, I don't know how long you'd probably stay asleep uh, in a saddle without, uh, without falling off. But uh, when the moment comes that he does sort of nearly slip off the saddle in his sleep and wakes up, he realizes that his horse has wandered off the road and he's lost in these very dangerous borderlands. Now, even today, this is a place where opium smugglers work the heroin trade between Iran and Afghanistan. Uh, it's a place that has always been uh, what we call in Scotland debatable land. It's uh, it's the border territory that you just do not want to get lost in at any time, particularly in a war, particularly at this moment. So Rollins is quite frightened and he wanders around in the dark, not quite sure what to do. He's not on a road, doesn't know where he is. And then dawn breaks over the Kohi Shah Jahan mountains and he begins to orient it himself. You can see a valley. He's heading towards it when he sees a cloud of dust coming towards him. And he knows what this is, clearly a large body of men heading towards him on horseback. So he does what any of us would do in this situation. He dismounts, he, he uh, ties up his horse in a little uh, uh, overhang of rock uh, and, and goes belly down 
uh, uh, to see what's coming. So it's, it's kind of like we have the Wild West. This is the it Wild is, East. It is, this is the Wild East. And, uh, of course, because this you know has to be a movie at some point, uh, Rawlinson is, as well as a, a prize-winning Persianate Orientalist, uh, he's also a, a Secret Service agent working for British intelligence, uh, inevitably speaking. And uh, he's in touch with the, the British spymaster Claude Wade, who's based on the Afghan border, uh, and also Pottinger, who's based in Gujarat. These are the two uh, East India Company spymasters collating information in Central Asia and Afghanistan, with the whole ring of spies, of carpet sellers and so on. working. The great game. The great game. This is the very, this in a sense is where it begins. This is almost the moment it begins. There's, there's a few uh, spy networks, but there's actually been no action until this moment. And Rawlinson looks up and he sees these horsemen resolve in front of his eyes into the thing that every East India Company intelligence officer has been predicting, but has never had the evidence for. It is a party of Cossacks in full uniform with a Russian flag flying, heading over the border from Persia into Afghanistan, and there's a considerable number of them. And Rawlinson then follows them rather bravely, and uh, having sort of shadowed them less successfully than he uh, uh, realises, he actually stumbles across them, um, making a samovar of tea uh, in, in a gully somewhere, uh, just as dawn is coming up. And uh, in charge is a multilingual, his, his direct parallel, uh, on the Russian side, who is a man called Ivan Vitkovich. Now, he doesn't know this, but Vitkovich is, in fact, a Polish Catholic who'd been uh, sent off into exile by the Russians for writing um, anti-Russian messages on his blackboard in Poland in, uh, 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 in age 14. He's the only one of his school friends to survive the exile, where they've been put into hard labor on the steppe. And he's learned Kazakh and all sorts of Persian and Arabic, exactly like Rawlinson has. And these two men meet each other, brewing up tea uh, in the borderlands of Persia and Afghanistan. And they both pretend not to be what they are. They're both playing around. I think they end up speaking in French to each other, but they try, uh, uh, Rawlinson tries Chagatay Turkish. (laughs) (laughs) As you do. As one does, Persian and everything else. And Rawlinson, sorry, Mikovic has all these languages and realises, in the sense, who he's speaking to, although he doesn't know the name of the man. and anyway, Rawlinson then turns his horse around. He goes straight back to Tehran, although he's been on the road already for whatever it is, a week. And uh, a camel messenger is sent off to the Gulf. Steamships cross to, uh, uh, to Egypt. Uh, the telegraph, which has got as far, I think, as Suez at this point, um, it, uh, it taps out the first Morse code, which crosses to Downing Street. And some chap runs up the, uh, the steps of the foreign office and says, the Russians have gone into Afghanistan. And so, Willie, tell us a bit about Afghanistan at this point. So um, this isn't, this is a sort of borderland, right? I mean, there, there, there are local rulers, but it's, it's, it's a pretty wild place. Am I right? It is a wild place, uh, but it's actually not uh, quite a borderland. At various points in its history, uh, Afghanistan has been the centre of many great empires. The Kushans, for example, uh, ruled an empire which which straddled most of the stands, Afghanistan and northern India. It's not true that Afghanistan has always been this sort of uh, uh, graveyard of empires. The, the Mughals had it as a very very successful summer capital. When we think of Mughal summer capitals, we tend to think of Kashmir because it's within India and, and it's part of the same world. But in actual fact, um, you know, Shah Jahan and Jahangir went as often to Kabul and played in the gardens there as they did to uh, as they did to Kashmir. Um, but 
the last great moment of uh, Central Asian culture has been uh, 200 years earlier with, with um, uh, Herat in the in the 16th century, which Robert Byron described as the Oriental Medici. You have uh, uh, some of the greatest miniature painters. You have some of the great uh, uh, universities of, uh, of the Islamic world there. But the whole place has been uh, losing its centrality uh, as a center of culture for a while. Uh, there's a revival under a man called Ahmed Shah Durrani, who is one of the uh, generals of uh, Nadir Shah. And he, when Nadir Shah is assassinated, Ahmed, uh, Ahmed Shah Durrani takes the Kohinoor and basically uses it as the capital uh, to found a new state, Afghanistan. And he creates an empire in the 1740s, which is only, um, you know, a century before, uh, uh, before the moment we're talking about, uh, which gobbles up a chunk of Safavid Persia, a chunk of the Uzbek Empire, and a chunk of Mughal India, and creates for the first time uh, an empire centered on Kabul, uh, uh, full of Afghans. And, and, and the English, although the word Afghanistan is never used, um, the kingdom of Kabul is the, is the political phrase, uh, it, it is people do talk about for the first time Afghans, uh, and and so this is the beginning, in a sense, of the modern Afghan state, and and its borders uh, are more or less those of Afghanistan by default, because uh, the Persians are where Persia is. Uh, Mughal India has now sort of uh, uh, ended in uh, uh, with the Sikh Empire and the Punjab, uh, and the Uzbeks have steadied at the Oxus. So you have this space in between, which of course is the uh, the title of Rory Stewart's book, which becomes Afghanistan. And so are they consciously playing, I mean, are they consciously playing off the Russians and the British because they're conscious of these two empires either side? And, and half the story of this, which again, you know, has echoed today, is that the um, British fear of Russia creates the very nightmare that they, that they fear. Because what happens is that following... Uh, the, the sighting of Vitkovich by Rawlinson, this meeting in the desert. Spies are sent off into Central Asia. One of these is Alexander Burns, who's also a great showman and a travel writer. Uh, and Alexander Burns has this wonderful moment when he travels up the Indus on a raft. Um, and they, they have to have an excuse to get permission to go up the Indus. So what they know is that Ranjit Singh, the, the, the Sikh ruler of Lahore, loves horses. They decide to present him with four enormous English cart horses. Uh, and then just to add to the whole thing, they decide they're going to take an old carriage that used to belong to the Lord Mayor of London. <laughs> and they stuff it full of geographers uh, from the Admiralty who are busy taking soundings on the depth of the Indus and the flow, char and flow charts and, uh, and all the rest of it. So this, this really quite professional spying expedition is heading up the Indus uh, in, in, on a raft, being popped at, uh, shots being popped at it by local tribesmen. Uh, with Burns sitting beside the Lord Mayor of London's coach and four English dray horses who have been rather out of place. How has uh, this not been made into a film? <laughs> a wonderful story. And uh, Burns, to, to, to fast forward, um, not only presents a whole body of espionage uh, material to his uh, paymaster, because he is a spy, uh, but he also, um, as his cover, is the great geographer, and he writes a three-volume account of his travels to Bukhara, which becomes a bestseller. He's received by uh, Queen Victoria, who thinks he's very charming. Um, he gets not only the Royal Medal of uh, the Royal Geogra sorry, the Gold Medal of the Royal Geographical so uh, Society in London, but he also gets the, the its French equivalent. His book is translated into French, and of course the Russians read it. And the Russians who do not have spies 
in Bukhara at this point, then send Vikovic to spy it out. And Vikovic successfully rolls up uh, Alexander Burns' espionage network uh, that he set up uh, in Bukhara. I mean, so it's actually no more than a couple of carpet dealers, but already everyone knows they're working for the British. But basically, the key is don't write a book. The key is yeah. if don't tell start, everyone what you're doing. I mean, it's mad. Don't worry, Stuart is listening. <laughs> anyway, um, so, so the British managed to create a paranoia in the Russians. I mean, there is a very generalized fear that the Russians definitely are moving south, but no, the Russians do not specifically have their eyes on Afghanistan. And certainly up to this point, other than a brief moment when, again, another wonderful raft story, there's the famous moment of, the, of, of Tilsit when Alexander, the Tsar of Russia and Napoleon meet on a barge uh, and plan to invade India together in 1810. 1812 is the retreat. So 1809, 1812, War and Peace opens with Before Tilsit. That's book one of War and Peace. Today we always read it as War and Peace, but it's actually three volumes Before Tilsit as well. And the story goes, again, allegedly, but I don't know whether it's true, that there is a British spy under the raft. (laughs) (laughs) I hope it's true. Uh, Peter Hopkirk has this in his book. Other people have pimpled it. I certainly want to believe it, whether it's true or not. And and definitely there are plans that Napoleon hatches, very far-fetched and bonkers to invade India. But that's the only time that Russia has actually thought of invading India, uh, and that was alongside Napoleon in this brief moment of, of, of uh, Russian-French union. And uh, so, nonetheless, in London, particularly under somebody called Lord Ellenborough, who is the sort of, um, I don't know who the equivalent in politics is today, maybe Michael Gove on one of his more Islamist rants. Um, uh, he, he says, we are in great danger from the Russian bear. Uh, and um, when the news comes that Vikovic has crossed into uh, uh, into Russia, Burns is sent to on a mission to Kabul to try and pull Dost Mohammed into the British sphere. So who's Dost Mohammed? Let me interrupt you. Dost Mohammed the... is uh, the man who has just overthrown Ahmed Shah Durrani's grandson, who is called Shah Shuja. Now Shah Shuja goes off into exile in British India, where he's being kept in reserve as a British puppet that the British can put back if they want to. Dost Mohammed, his enemy, is now running Afghanistan. And is it true, Willie, can I interrupt you? Is it true, I read, that Dost Mohammed had 16 wives, 27 sons and 25 daughters? Uh, it certainly could be true because he himself is definitely the 18th son of his <laughs> father. <laughs> wow, that's a big family gathering. And as you can imagine, to get to be the, the ruling heir when you have 17 elder brothers. Uh, yeah, take- you've got to be. <laughs> <laughs> no uncertain uh, uh, ruthlessness. Anyway, Dost Mohammed actually has no ill feeling towards the British at all or any particular fondness for the Russians. Uh, and um, Burns says very clearly that there's absolutely no re- need to topple Dost Mohammed. We can, we can pull him into our, uh, into our uh, net and into our uh, alliances very easily. But by this time, Burns is the most hated man in India because all he has just come, got all the glory, met Queen Victoria, got the two gold medals. And all his superiors who've been working on the Afghan frontier absolutely hate it. They are green with jealousy at the success of this glamorous young man. And there's also quite a lot of stories that he's been sleeping with the women of Kabul and all this sort of stuff. So the two spy chiefs, Pottinger and Wade, do their best to rubbish everything that Burns is sending from Kabul. And in the end, a very bad decision that Dost Mohammed needs to be removed. He doesn't. 
And at this point, the East India Company doesn't even have a border with Afghanistan. They have to go through um, the Sikh Punjab. Ranjit Singh, the Lion of the Punjab, has an incredibly um, wonderful army trained up by ex-Napoleonic generals. Uh, he has fantastic cannon, which anyone who's in London can see, because uh, they're now lined up on the lawns of Chelsea Hospital. Um, if you go into Chelsea, you can see all these fantastic state-of-the-art Sikh cannon with, with all Ranjit Singh's insignia on them. And um, the army sets off. 20,000 men leave Ferozpur in the Punjab. And with them are this fantastic camp followers. One general has 26 camels to carry his kit uh, uh, and a bar. Um, there are um, five camels dedicated only to bringing the army's supply of cheroots. One camel carries nothing. <laughs> five camels with cheroots. Is that <laughs> possible? And one camel is entirely carrying eau de cologne for the officers. Makes <laughs> <laughs> you proud all, to be British. Best of all, they've also, of course, brought their fox hounds. Of course. Uh, ridiculous army marches off. Uh, through the uh, Punjab, which is perfectly consistent because it's fertile and lovely, but then into the Baluchi Desert in the middle of summer. They'd meant to leave in winter, and they've all left in winter outfits. But because Rajit Singh has been frantically dragging his feet on, on giving them permission, to, quite rightly, to cross the Punjab, because he knows that the minute the, the, the East India Company is north and south of him, he, 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 he's toast. Um, they, so they end up crossing the Baluchi Desert in the middle of high summer, with temperatures reaching 50 degrees, and they drop like flies. The, the half the foxhounds die. Um, uh, there are all sorts of stuff. Somehow, um, Lady Sale, who's with the army, uh, manages to get her grand piano through. How many camels have been employed uh, by Lady Sale to get it up? But anyway, uh, so this ridiculous. Uh, and, and yes, they have everything. They have so, why is Lady Sale going? Willie, why is Lady Sale going? They have the Oda Cologne, they have the shoes, but the one thing they don't have is a map. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, why why is she going tom that's a good question why does lady sell go and why does she take i mean that's mad to take that's just deluded to take a piano with you well i you have to ask lady Sale. <laughs> <laughs> but she's going along I, just I for the fun of it take the grand piano because she wants to play it <laughs> she she lady sale is going for the fun of it for the excitement of it no, no, the... she's married to fighting bob sale who is the, uh, okay the right right um, and so she, she's a, she's a military wife. So there's all, I mean, all, I, th I think actually in fairness, Lady Sale follows about uh, follows several months later. She's not actually on the advance guard. Okay, but, uh, okay. Nonetheless, she does bring a grab. <laughs> okay. I suppose it's like taking a, an iPhone or something, isn't it? Um, anyway, they say they have they have they have you know 260 camels of kit, uh, 50 uh, 30 camels carrying shoes, but they don't have a map, and they belatedly uh, try and buy um, off the French Napoleonic general working for Ranjit Singh, I, call, uh, I think it's Avatarbele, one of or one of the Napoleonic generals, uh, sells them his sketch notes and sketch maps of Afghanistan that he's made on his journey from France. And the East India Company pays something colossal, like I think £25,000, which in 1842 is, is more or less like sort of uh, uh, a million pounds for, for this, 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 these sketch maps done on, on, on horseback uh, by you know, a guy with that surveying equipment. And so they get very lost. And there's a lot of, you know, which way is Afghanistan? Go straight, no, go straight. Massive death from of sepoys who haven't been given any water, massive uh, uh, casualties. But against all likelihood, they arrive the other side of the desert and the other side of the mountains at Kandahar. And they take Kandahar the same night, although they haven't got artillery because they've left 
behind. And the march from this point is exactly like the Taliban this week. Everyone just runs off and leaves. And they take Kabul without firing a shot. It's a direct parallel. Uh, and this happens over and over again in Afghanistan. The Afghans do not like to fight pitch battles. Uh, they're much too canny for that. They let you take their cities and then it all begins with guerrilla activity. And this is exactly what happens. For one winter, the British do amateur theatricals in Kabul. Uh, they go uh, duck shooting and ice skating. And they play there. cricket, don't they? They play cricket. They play cricket. There's lots of cricket. Uh, and there's lots of uh, hunting of the foxhounds. Foxhounds who've survived the march uh, are taken out to hunt jackals. And presumably the piano comes in very useful over it. In the meantime, the man put in charge of this, uh, a guy called McNaughton, who is an Orientalist who who goes, at one point certainly he's on the top of an elephant as he's entering Kabul, um, translating the Arabian Nights from Arabic. (laughs) And uh, McNaughton, who has blue tinted spectacles, also, like everybody else, hates Alexander Burns. So Burns got nothing to do totally sidelined. Uh, he, holds, uh, he holds a Burns night. He is a cousin of Alexander Burns. He, and, he, and there's, there's dancing. So he's a cousin of Robbie Burns, uh, although his name is spelled slightly different. Uh, and uh, there's reels and there's uh, haggises in, 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 in Kabul. But with nothing better to do, he gets back again uh, and he starts seducing the wives of the Afghan warlords. And this, of course, is a very bad um, uh, thing to do <laughs> if you are in <laughs> Afghanistan do not sleep with any warlord's wives. And um, the and this is literally what precipitates the rebellion. He, he takes the mistress of one of the tribal leaders called Abdullah Khan Achaksai. And according to one of the Afghan epic poems, which uh, my friend Bruce Wanell translated to me about this, there's a passage where Abdullah Khan Achaksai summons his tribesmen and says, um, the English have, have ridden the donkey of their desires into the field of stupidity. Uh, this is possibly <laughs> my favorite line in the whole book. <laughs> and so that, we just all avoid riding the dog with our desires into fields of stupidity. Well, Willie, I think lives. I think that's a perfect note on which to quickly take a break. And now, having ridden the donkey of stupidity into the fields or whatever it is, um, we'll have a break. And uh, when we come back, we will ride the donkey of stupidity even further to ultimate disaster. From Cleopatra to Camilla Parker Bowles, and from Madame de Pompadour to Lola Montez. The other woman has been a staple of gossip throughout history. But who will make our list of the top ten mistresses of all time? Some of them are famed for their beauty, some for their political acumen, and some for their prowess in selling oranges. Glamour, sophistication, intelligence, savoir-faire. Join us for an evening rich in all these qualities and more. Dominic and myself will be at The Rest is History Live at the London Podcast Festival, Friday, September the 10th at 7pm. Tickets cost £12.50 and can be bought at kingsplace.co.uk. kingsplace.co.uk. See you there. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We have been riding the donkey of desire into the fields of stupidity. And um, what's going to happen next? I foresee disaster ahead, William Dalrymple. Am I right? You are exactly right, Dominic Zabrook. Uh, that is exactly what happened. So um, the Afghan tribes rise up, and quite a lot of the tribes had been very happy to support Shah Shuja, were pleased to see him back, but none of them liked this British occupation force. And the East India Company army has 
behaved as it would have done in Bengal. They've laid out, first of all, their tents, then afterwards the tents are replaced by wooden and then a few uh, brick structures or stone structures um, on the plains outside Kabul, as if it was the plains of Bengal. Um, apparently omitting to notice that every single one of these uh, these tents is overlooked by mountains immediately on top and perfect sniper territory. Uh, and they're too busy fox hunting and doing Scots reels and uh, and all the rest of it. Uh, so that when the uprising breaks out, breaks out very quickly, the insurgents uh, steal some East India Company cannon, pull it onto the hills around the, the camp and start bombarding it. And it's a completely indefensible position. And then um, as chance would have it, because this, this uprising was not particularly planned. It was it was started by Abdullah Khan Achakzai because uh, his girlfriend had run off to Alexander Burns' house. Um, winter, uh, the first winter snows begin to fall. The passes block up and there's clearly no help coming from Calcutta or from the Punjab. Just a quick question about the army, uh, Willie, that occurs to me. Um, you describe them as East India Company cannon. So is this definitely an East India Company expedition rather than a British national expedition? So when we were talking about the anarchy, uh, and particularly battles like Plassey on the last time I came on the show, it's a very black and white thing because the um, the, the company had 200,000 sepoys, which, are the, uh, which were the force which invaded um, the whole of India. But in this case, there are now uh, a mixture of regiments of the line in other words, regular arm, British army fighting alongside East India Company sepoys. So the great mass of troops are East India Company sepoys, but I think there are, there are at least two regiments of, of regular British army okay. uh, here. So, so it's a mix. So this this is reflecting the position of the East India Company, by, by which by the 1840s has become much more of a, what I suppose today we would call a public-private partnership. Uh, the what started off as, as the ultimate libertarian. Uh, 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 trading company with no government links at all uh, other than a corporation uh, a charter to start it has now become a 50 percent owned by the british government and by 1840 has actually been forbidden to uh, has lost its monopoly to trade uh, and so uh, it's looking much more like a, a semi-governmental organization than the early days of clive and hastings right the engineering uh, uh thing but still you know, the, the fact remains almost all the troops are are, are indian sepoys born in india um, there's some Nepalis uh, and some Gurkhas, uh, but uh, uh, and then there's uh, a regiment of Skinner's Horse, for example, which is um, uh, which is uh, you know led by Anglo-Indians, the, the Skinner family. Uh, but there are several regiments of the line, and there's a, and there's a, a snobbery of hierarchy, and, and the regiments of the line of British Army consider themselves in every way superior uh, to the East India Company. The East India Company, however, speak Urdu and uh, and Hindi and feel that they're much superior to the British Army, who don't know what's uh, what's going on locally. So there's lots of rivalry. Going on, and that is reflected in the response to the uprising, because the 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 um, Elphinstone, uh, William Elphinstone, who is the very dim cousin of the brilliant Mount Stuart Elphinstone, who leads is, is a gouty uh, veteran of Waterloo who hasn't seen action since 1815. We're now talking uh, 1842 January, and his deputy, who's a man called Shelton, uh, uh, and he are on non-speaks. They are they are uh, there's massive divisions, and it's a complete fiasco. Uh, not only are the company defeated in battle on the few occasions they do ride out and try and take on the insurgents in the hills around the country, um, they are running out of food. Uh, Lady uh, Lady Sale has now had to burn her grand piano uh, for firewood because they've run oh, out dear. of uh, 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 eating material. Um, they've eaten the foxhounds by the stage. <laughs> oh, that's very bad form. 
But the cricket bats are all right. Please tell me the cricket bats are okay. Uh, I, I think the cricket bats, I suspect, would also have been, uh, also have been burnt. I, you I know, know things are firm, getting bad. Firm, firm primary source evidence for that. Though, Thomas. So, anyway, um, there's obviously no, no um, option but to retreat. And it's now January 1842. And the Afghans seem to be dragging their feet a little during negotiations. And people are mysteri- mystified by this because they think, you know, they, want, they probably want to get rid of us as much as we want to get out of here. Um, and it drags on for two or three weeks. Finally, the moment comes in January when they set off into the snow. And everyone knows this is not looking good. Uh, the passes are, are anyway almost entirely blocked. No one moves armies around Central Asia in the middle of winter because um, uh, you can you know, freeze in seconds outside your tent. And what, of course, has happened is the Afghans prepared a whole series of barricades and ambushes, and they're just waiting for them. And, and, and it, within a few hours of setting off from the cantonment not only have tax begun on the column but the cantonment has been burnt down and looted uh, rather like the uh, 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 some of the scenes seen in Kabul this weekend of looting um, the, the people run oh no exactly what happened to Bamiyan when it was deserted a month sort of exactly what happened uh, at Bagram Air Base when the Americans left it two months ago uh, the locals just ran in and looted it is exactly what happens in the British cantonment uh, in, a, in January uh, 1842. So the first night, the British are stuck in the snow having snipers firing at them, and they can see behind them the flames of the cantonment, the light of the cantonment, flickering fires. From the, and they know there's no retreat. They can't go back. Uh, but the, the, it's five days' march to Jalalabad. And, and Willie, what I, what I remember from Flashman is that Elphinstone gets shot in the buttocks, doesn't he? <laughs> Well, that's so much with Flashman. Uh, there's an awful lot which is historically accurate, uh, but a certain amount of license. <laughs> right. OK, so that didn't and, happen. And, uh, that's Elphinstone terrible. The one is, fact I remember isn't true. Elphinstone is, is definitely wounded, but uh, <laughs> uh, in, in the sources I've read, buttocks are not. <laughs> OK. <laughs> explicitly. Um, but yes, Elfie Bay, as he's called, um, uh, is, uh, is, is wounded, has a stroke, I think, probably uh, in the middle of all this horror. And day by day, the number of survivors goes down from 20,000 to 10,000 to 5,000 to 2,000. There's a terrible moment uh, at a place called uh, Jigdalik where the holly hedge is erected in their path. And uh, the cavalry, which so far have been marching out fairly easily, can't get over this. Uh, and they're shot down and people are crawling over it. Um, and uh, several hundred die on this hedge, unable to cross this, this, this barrier that's erected in their way. And finally, um, there's, there's, there's a bunch of lancers making the last stretch um, uh, to, and, and the 51st foot, uh, who form themselves into a square on the hill of Gundamuk, fight until their ammunition uh, is exhausted and then fall, uh, form a bayonet line. And there's a very famous uh, painting of this, isn't there, Willie? Famous painting, exactly. Uh, and um, they fight until their last bullet. They form a... Uh, a bayonet wall, but the Afghans realise there's no need to charge bayonets, they just pull back. And one of the features of the war is that the Afghans have this very old-fashioned Mughal Jazail, which is a, a, a hunting rifle that, that Shah Jahan could be seen using to hunt deer. And it's a l- big, heavy, unwieldy thing, but it's, it has a very long barrel and is accurate over a distance of about half a mile, while the Brown Best musket fires only 300 yards. So they realise there's no need to uh, to take these guys on uh, shoulder to shoulder, they just pull back and shoot from a distance, and every last man is killed except for one guy who's wrapped himself in the colours 
uh, and he's taken hostage because they think he must be worth something because he's got such fancy colored clothes on. Um, and uh, that is a guy called Thomas Suter, and the first British camp in Helmand is called Camp Suter uh, after his memory. Anyway, um, this leaves some lancers who are cut down one by one by the last of the cavalry until only Dr. Bryden is left on his nag. And the reason <laughs> Dr. Bryden survives is he has a copy of Blackwood's magazine. He's a reader. Uh, uh, he would definitely have subscribed to, uh, to uh, 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 the rest of his history uh, if, uh, if, if he was around uh, today. And uh, He has a copy of Blackwood's magazine in his forage cap so that when they, uh, th- these two Afghan horsemen come for him, they sh- one of them shoots a, a, a pistol which misfires and then he hacks at him with a sword, but it goes into Blackwood's magazine, which is <laughs> sitting in his hat because <laughs> he <laughs> wanted to read in the evening uh, and, um, and doesn't land, doesn't pierce his skull. And he alone uh, of the British troops makes it through to uh, Jalalabad. In the day did, Black, of- did Blackwood's use that as a kind of advertising slogan? Should have done. Read, read Blackwood's, it'll keep you alive. It's the kind of thing the TLS would do, or London <laughs> Review of Books or something. Um, contrary to the myth, he's not the only survivor, he's not even the only white survivor. Several other troops straggle in after him. Um, bizarrely, a Greek uh, shopkeeper who'd been running this sort of kebab shop in the cantonment uh, has, has hidden in a cave and comes in with a bottle of Uzu a week later. Um, and uh, there's, there's a whole bunch of Nepali Gurkhas who have just gone up some valleys and, and are completely happy with the, with the temperature and are completely used to Fine surviving. The and so the Gurkhas sort of reappear about a week later uh, uh, in perfect order with their, with their uh, uh, medal shining and all the rest of it. Uh, and then some of the Hindu sepoys turn up a year and a half later at the Kumela in Hardwa, uh, having walked all the way home. So he's not, in fact, the only survivor. Okay, so, there are so, so, two, so two people, to uh, what their fits. So Lady Sale. Lady Sale, along with all the other lady, or several of the other ladies, not all of them, by any, many are killed. Uh, but Lady Sale, along with several others, is taken hostage. And then there's protracted hostage negotiations. And basically, at the end of the day, there's a swap. Dos Mohammed, who's been, uh, uh, who had been captured, or rather given himself up early, had been kept in, in some um, start in the British hill station of Missouri, uh, in, in the Himalayas, uh, Dost Mohammed uh, is brought back, and the man negotiating is Dost Mohammed's son, Akbar Khan, who is a young, handsome sort of movie hero type, uh, who's led this resistance and planned the, the Holly Hedge at uh, Jagdalik and all the rest. Of it. Um, and Dost Mohammed is brought home. Uh, he makes an agreement with the British that he will not allow the Russians in, and otherwise uh, he's allowed to come back unmolested. And you end up at the and Lady Sale and the others are swapped for him and they uh, haven't been molested they, there are they've, several other they've been looked after well have they or have they fared in captivity kept very well including my uh, direct forebear uh, colin mckenzie who's, who's, one, who's dressed up in afghan dress making a great sort of uh, uh, he has lots of self-portraits painted when he gets home in afghan dress all this sort of stuff um and um these the, the war ends exactly as this war has ended with the government which was in power before all this coming back into power and because no one can threaten it anymore because of the enormous prestige it's won defeating an imperial power Dost Mohammed then stays in power for the rest of his life and he has a very grand tomb which I've seen in the Gaza Gah in Herat, one of the most beautiful Sufi shrines uh, in Afghanistan. 
And 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 um, Willie, what what about um, Shah Shuja? So Shah Shuja, so, who is the him? hero of my book, um, Return of a King, the King in Question is Shah Shuja. Shah Shuja is is a very attractive character. He is um, a poet. <clears throat> he is um, he keeps his nerve when the uprising breaks out in Kabul, and when the British flee and desert him, he's holed up in the Balahazar, um, uh, having defended it very admirably. Uh, he's an extremely brave man. He's persistent. His flaw is he's too grand. He doesn't, uh, he, he he makes everybody stand in his durbars, which was the Mughal style, and his mother is Mughal, uh, but is not the manner uh, or the Afghans used to. They're used to sitting down on a carpet uh, altogether uh, in uh, uh, in a tribal jirga. And this egalitarian mode is what makes Dost Muhammad so successful. He doesn't play grand. He, 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 he entertains and charms. Uh, all his um, tribesmen. And this is one of the many parallels, if we can move on to parallels, uh, with the present. Because but but we just but before that, what, yeah. what, what happens to Shuja? Shashuja survives all this. Um, the British cut up, the, uh, the, the um, uh, deals are done, and Shashuja, in the end, is killed by a um, godson uh, who wants uh, to get in with Dost Muhammad. Uh, and uh, but for that, he he may well have survived the whole thing. Uh, but the, but he, he he has slighted a godson who feels he hasn't been given promotion or something. And so some small right. petty internal feud does. For so him. it's it's rudeness that does it. And, and sorry, I interrupted you when you were talking about the parallels because that is a great parallel, isn't it? Because um, there is a huge premium in Afghanistan still on basic climate, and this was one of the great qualities of Hamid Karzai who would make every Afghan, particularly any tribal elder who'd come in from the countryside, uh, he would give them time, he would talk to them, he would... Uh, he would. So he was the first president team. of... He was the first president... Of the stalled American in what, 2002, yeah. In 2002. But the important point, as far as, again, this war is concerned, that we're talking about, is he is the direct descendant of Shah Shuja. He is the head <laughs> of the Putlzai tribe. Uh, we basically put the same guy in twice. Um, uh, Karzai is a slightly nicer version of Shah Shuja. Uh, and um, Karzai did actually an incredible job, charming everyone. And his replacement, Ashraf Ghani, who incidentally is a good friend, was very kind to me, the man that helped me find a lot of the sources for the book when he was head of the history department and chancellor of, of Kabul University. Um, Ashraf was incredibly rude to people. He was very grand. He was a, he had worked for the World Bank, taught at Columbia. Uh, he didn't have time for fools. Uh, he was, he, you know, he, he was a very successful university professor and World Bank technocrat, but would give tribal leaders who'd walked, you know, 20 days across Afghanistan to see him uh, 10 minutes. He'd literally say, you've got 10 minutes. Another story I've heard, which is interesting, is that he also um, put uh, his feet up in front of tribal elders. Now, in India still today, I've always been taught that you must never point your feet at someone. If you're sitting cross-legged, uh, it's huge, hugely rude uh, in that culture to, to point your feet or to put your feet up. Ashraf Ghani had a, 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 a sort of puff in front of his armchair and, his, and he just put his feet up like you, know, you would at home. Uh, but this went down apparently very badly and, and serially offended a whole series of tribal elders who, uh, who invited him to his inner sanctum. And Karzai never did this. And, and weird story with this is that Karzai read my book, Return of a King, and he had always been haunted by the fact that Shah Shuja was his forebear and that Shah Shuja had died 
regarded as a traitor by many of the Afghans. Uh, and he was particularly worried because the tribe which brought down um, Shah Shuja, the who were the leaders of the guy who's, uh, who were, sorry, the tribesmen of the man whose mistress Alexander Burns uh, uh, seduced, uh, Abdullah Khan Achakta, um, were the Gilzai tribe. And the Gilzai, remarkably today, are the foot soldiers of the Taliban. And so beneath what we perceive very easily today, as uh, a simple battle of Democrats and uh, and Demo- uh, Democrats and Westernized Afghans against Islamist tribal barbarians, actually masks a old tribal fault line, which is the Barakzais and Popozais, who are the Tofs, the landowners, against the Gilzai, who are the herdsmen uh, and the uh, day laborers on the on on the Popozais land, and. Um, Mullah Omar is a descendant of the of the resistance leader of eighteen forty two. So, so, so Willie, the, the the implication of all that, it, well, that would for some listeners they will say that that creates a sense of inevitability that that the patterns of history are, are merely repeating themselves. Is that too simplistic though? Do you, or do you think there is a kind no, of truth? In this to case, that? we did literally put the same guy on the throne twice. We put the head of the Pobazite tribe, and he was brought down by the Gilzai. Was that him? Um, and as I say, the weird story that follows is that Karzai red return of a king very closely. He was given it by someone as he was on his way to Washington to meet Obama. And none of us knew any about this until WikiLeaks, because it turned out that Hillary Clinton was very upset because when he came out of the place, having read this book, he altered his policy and began to be publicly much more hostile to the Americans while taking their help, while taking their military. He saw it as vital that he didn't look like Shah Shuja and appear to be the puppet of the Americans. And so publicly started making very rude remarks about Americans, you know, creating casualties by uh, inadequate intelligence, bombing the wrong villages, and all this sort of stuff. Um, and he was very frosty to Obama. And WikiLeaks revealed these letters from Hillary Clinton, emails from Hillary Clinton, which were, um, uh, we now know, uh, taken by the Russians and handed to WikiLeaks, um, that uh, what is this bloody book that uh, Karzai is reading? Ever since he's picked it up, he's become completely intransigent and won't talk to us and is incredibly rude. Uh, and this was all on the, on the, when WikiLeaks came out, this is all on the front page of the New York Times. Uh, and at this point, I then got invited to um, to, to brief the book. <laughs> the book got more and more absurd. But the best bit was when uh, Karzai then called me to one Ramadan to his palace, now occupied by the Taliban. I saw a picture on the internet this morning of the Taliban flag flying over the Arg, the uh, the old uh, uh, citadel in the center of Kabul. Uh, but um, we basically did a deal. And Karzai said, if you come to me during Ramadan, which is the kind of you know the big fasting and the holiday in, in the Islamic world, come to me uh, during Ramadan and we will talk every evening after iftar, after the, the breaking the fast. Um, we will have fruit together, uh, and I will ask you about Shashuja, and in return you can have an interview. So I got six hours of interview with Karzai, which went into a, uh, a, a New York Times profile, uh, which is online, if anyone wants to read it. Uh, and in return, Karzai got to ask all the questions about Shashuja uh, from these sources, which Ashraf Ghani had given me. So it's all... <laughs> it's a rare case of a history book, in a small way, genuinely uh, altering uh, the course of, uh, of policy. Um, in the end, of course, it didn't make any difference because, as we now know, um, 
the the wider lineaments of uh, of history repeating overtook all this, uh, and we now are back exactly where we were at the end of the 1842 First Anglo-Afghan War with the same ruler in charge. Well, that's the question, isn't it? Isn't it, Willie? Do you think, looking back now after 20 years, I mean, I know this is a massive question and we're reaching the end of the podcast anyway, but um, do you think the Taliban's victory was inevitable? No, I don't think it was inevitable. I think Karzai showed that with the right politeness and kindness and by distancing himself from his Western host, he could mask the fact that he was kept in power by a Western puppet master and make a regime which was acceptable to the Afghans. But it was touch and go. And when someone less dexterous, Ashraf Ghani, took over and was rude to people and diminished the popularity uh, of the uh, of the regime and alienated one by one tribal leaders from across the country. Ashraf actually, you know, had a temper. He used to throw things at people. I, I heard a story, for example, one press conference where he threw an ashtray at a female journalist. That sort of thing just doesn't play. Because really, the, I mean, the, the, the general sense that historians have is, is the interplay of great tectonic plates grinding against each other, vast impersonal forces. But in, in 1842, it's Burns seducing the wrong woman. Correct. And you're saying that now it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a guy throwing ashtrays at people. I think we know in are our th- own Are those, those tiny kind of trigger points that, that affect... I think from our own experience in our own time, there are tiny things that, that these great forces of history, these great Tolstoyan yeah. uh, moments, uh, uh, I mean, these great Tolstoyan forces which form the economy and, and shape the destiny of the nation do exist. But equally, tiny little accidents can uh, alter things. For example, in our own time, if Boris Johnson had had, you know, he wrote, famously wrote the two articles pro-Brexit and against Brexit. If he had, if he had actually decided to back Cameron and not taken the part of uh, 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 of going for Brexit, would we be where we are now with Europe? Quite possibly not. One man's decision at a crucial moment can alter things. In the context of Afghanistan, though, you say that this is a society where politeness is very important and knowing the rules of courtesy are very important. Do you think it's a problem? And you know, for the West, right the way from 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 the eighteen forties, that we tend not to know these rules. It certainly is a problem. Um, and you know, as I said, there are a huge array of possibilities every day in all our lives. You know, if we were to turn right rather than to turn left at a given moment, uh, how history would be different. Um, but yes, I think I, I don't think that the it was impossible that a pro-Western regime could have survived in Afghanistan because the Taliban were very unpopular. They were an extremely brutal regime. This regime now, though, is regarded as incredibly corrupt. And it's rather like the Islamic revolution in, in Iran in the, in the 70s. Uh, there is a huge number of people who feel that a, a small elite have gobbled up uh, corruptly huge sums of money. Um, there are stories circulating in Kabul now that Ashraf Ghani's car was stuffed with cash uh, and they couldn't get it all in the in in the plane he escaped in, and a lot of the money was left on the runway uh, in in Kabul. Three or four people have told me the story. I have no idea whether it's true or not. But the the fact that enough people believe these stories um, creates an atmosphere where where the regime that has just ended was seen to be corrupt, greedy, 
uh, Ghani's nephew left in a Learjet with an Instagram post saying, trying to leave. Yeah, I saw that. I can. Uh, yeah. That sort of thing creates massive upset with poor people who, who do not, have not got their hands in the money pot, who are not uh, uh, eating the honey. Um, yeah. And um, I think many people will be waiting to see whether this regime is better for them. Uh, many women will have their lives destroyed. There will be huge cruelty. There will be terrible. Uh, I mean, I personally think it's a it's a catastrophe, and, uh, and I have many many friends whose lives uh, have been hobbled and restricted, and uh, whose lives may well be in danger. Um, yeah. I got a, I got an email from Karzai's office this morning saying uh, he's okay and uh, 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 that he's uh, it, it read rather like in fact to kind of uh, carry on up the Kyber email saying. Uh, uh, there was some moments of tension, but all is now restored. <laughs> right. Well, we'll hope for the best. Um, what a somber note in which to end. Incredible sang uh, But, you know, many people's lives will be, will be deeply damaged by this. Whether this regime manages to solidify itself and, and hold together like Dost Mohammed managed after the catastrophe of 1842 when he came back into power um, remains to be seen. Already, certainly, the Taliban have proved to be far more disciplined and less fractured than we all thought they were. The, the idea was that it was a bunch of disparate hooligans uh, and fundamentalists in the hills, incapable really of, uh, of cohering and, and mounting a coordinated campaign. But that was clearly very wrong. It's been an extraordinary military success. So a bit, um, a bit like the, um, the, the way that the, uh, the various tribes uh, in 1842 got together to absolutely seal the doom of the British retreat. That, that exactly that. Uh, although, again, you know, there the, the were there were all sorts of tensions and tribal rivalries within the resistance. That the British, were but they held the together. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, um, that's an incredibly somber note on which to end. And um, again, absolute tour de force of historical explication. Yeah. So, thank you, Willie. Thank you. You Willie. retain your record. <laughs> yeah. You <laughs> definitely retain your record. Could I? Um, there's just one thing. One other note on which I like to end which is it's not to do with afghanistan but it is to do with iraq where western forces also um intervened and, and left a kind of a lot of damage um and it's a walk that i'm doing on the 23rd and 24th so that's uh next monday if you're listening to this as it comes out and next tuesday walking um 50 miles in 24 hours and that is partly in aid of yazidi refugees um uh, religious minority in Iraq who still can't go back to their homes who are suffering terribly intense. So any um, any sponsorship you could give me on that would be hugely appreciated. And you can get the link on my, it's my pinned tweet at Holland underscore Tom. So many thanks for that. Thank you, Willie, for allowing me if, to do that. If uh, I thank you, Dominic. A, another <laughs> appeal at this point. Um, Rory Stewart's Turquoise Mountain Foundation has issued an appeal for Afghans who are in difficulty at the moment in Afghanistan. Okay. Uh, Rory Stewart's um, uh, Twitter site is easy to find. There's, there aren't any other Rory Stewart's. Um, and at his pinned tweet at the top of okay. his thing, but a very, very worthy cause. Yeah. yeah, thank you, Willie. That was absolutely fascinating. So that ends our Afghan duo, and uh, we will see you all next week for more The Rest is History. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.